Good morning. I am so eager to talk to you about Acts chapter 12 as we consider uh, becoming the church, stories of the first Jesus people, that open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12 and let's read it together. It's a great chapter. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them or harm them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out of public, for, for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. And Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued or delivered me from the from Herod's clutches or the hand of Herod, and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed. She ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James 
and the brothers about this, he said. And then he left for another place. That would be James, the brother of the Lord. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. He'd been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him, having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of God, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. This chapter really fascinates me. I think verse 11 is very significant because it's there that Peter realized that certainly the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod, from the hand of Herod. Now, this wording he rescued or delivered me from the hand of, is an exact quote from Exodus. The language is used variously, but this particular wording, uh, this is written in Greek, and if you go back and read the Greek Bible, the Septuagint, the translation of the Hebrew Bible, it's, it's the exact wording of, of uh, Exodus chapter 18, verse 10. I mean, Peter obviously talks about or frames in his mind or realizes that God has stepped into his situation and done for him what was done on a much grander scale in the very founding and formation of his people. I think that's really a key. I think it's important for us. What strikes me here is that when you read chapter 12, you start off with Herod as king. And, and it's like we've lost sight that Jesus is king. In fact, the work of Luke and Acts, you know, the gospel of Luke and Acts, this two-part work that, that Luke presents of the history of the church, it, it opens in the very first chapter with, uh, with Mary being visited by the angel, and the angel tells her in verses 31, 2, and 3, that, uh, that Jesus is going to be called his name, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, Mary's a young girl. You've heard me explain and build the case that I think she's probably only 12 or 13. But, but even young girls of that age, they weren't playing with Barbies. They were grounded in the, in the traditions of their people. The, you know, they observed Passover every year. These things told the story of that they were the people of God. They bore his name. Not just any God, the God who created heaven and earth. The God who called Abraham, who gave to him a land. The God of the patriarchs, of Jacob, who became Israel. The God of the prophets. The God of King David. The God of the fulfillment of the prophetic word that there would be a Messiah. And his name would be called Jesus. Mary didn't have to hear all that. She didn't have to. When the angel spoke to her, she realized that this God, this great God who created heaven and earth, this grand God of this grand history of his people, was touching her life in a very personal way. That this child to be born to her was going to be the Messiah. The fulfillment of all of that. And the future. In fact, as many scholars have called Jesus the middle of history, the center of God's will. And in, in fact, the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. Peter had to realize that what was happening in his experience in this deliverance, this was the very hand of God. And while he was realizing that, people were praying that God would deliver him. Or we might suppose, because it's mentioned for us, I think it's in verse 4, that he's arrested and the people are praying. What, what really impresses me in this chapter is that Mary and Paul, Peter and the church, all the first Jesus people realize, they understand, they know that with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit after Jesus was was raised from the dead, taken up, raised to the right hand of the Father and glorified. The Holy Spirit was poured out on them and they realized that they were a vital part of and extension of what God was doing in Jesus Christ. This, this middle of time, this, this 
Messiah who fulfills what God had done for His people and in a sense determines the future. And they knew they were a part of that. And yet what I see, to speak very plainly here in chapter 12, is I, the way Luke presents this, it's, it seems that without saying too much, he is saying they lost sight of that too. Herod is king when you start out. Herod is king, not Jesus. That's what Messiah means, anointed, God-given, God-anointed Messiah, king of the Jews. That's why he was crucified. That's what they believe. But here, as we read, it's, it's about King Herod. He is king. He has the power. James has been put to death, and Peter in prison. And the Jesus people are powerless. The people of God are just people here. Helpless people. Doomed. All they can do is pray. That's the picture that I'm getting. And I think Luke wants us to see that. Because I think that's the truth. That is the truth. Luke is a historian. Look, if you're a historian, you see the beginning from the end. You have this vantage point. You have all the details now, or more than most, at least enough to call you a historian. And he sees the big picture He sees not only the verses, but the entire chapter. And we, you and me, like Peter and the church, we live down in the verses. We live down in the words that make up those verses. That's where we live. We're in the middle of the chapter. We're in the opening of the chapter. And sometimes we can't see the end of the chapter. But I think we learn here in Acts 12 that we must keep our eyes on the God of the chapters, our great God of the great story, the God who authors the story and the plot that has become not just the plot of His story, but the plot of our story. And that we're a part of that plot. That's what the first Jesus people understood with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. God was working through them as instruments of His will. And He's poured out His Spirit on His church and on you and on me for that very purpose. We are with these people in what's happening in their lives. And even when they feel overwhelmed or buried in the details and down in the verses, they belong to the God of the great Bible. They belong to the God of history. The God who's writing the story, and we do too. But the people of God here, I think we're to understand, we're to see, are just like you and me. 
But I think Luke wants us just like them, as Peter does. And then (laughs) the early church gathered at the house of John Mark's mother. Um, I think he wants us to recover the big picture of our great God. It's a bigger picture than we sometimes realize. And... I guess, you know, I'm preaching this to you. I'm proclaiming this. I'm declaring this. I'm encouraging. So what you've got to do, just like what I've got to do, is we've got to preach this to ourselves. You know? When you're down in the verses, and you're stuck in the details, and you're trying to climb over some big word, and you can't see the whole chapter, or you can't see the chapters, or you can't see the end of the story, you've got to remind yourself, hey, I belong to a great God. I'm a part of His plan. I am a member of what He is trying to do in this world. Through His Son, Jesus Christ, and me as one of His people, endowed with His Holy Spirit. And what we also need to realize is is that the power isn't ours. The power is His. Throughout reading this chapter, I mean, if you were doing what I would do, you'd be reading this and you'd say, God, what 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 are you saying to us? Or as I say, as the Lord, what do you want to say to us? to grace on Sunday morning. And I'm trying to see the whole chapter here. And one thing that just kept coming to mind was 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, where Paul writes, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We have this treasure in in jars of clay. Some read earthen vessels. Jars of clay. You know, in in Jesus' day, people like us, their their pots were made of clay. They couldn't afford silver and gold or metals. And clay is mud hardened mud. And they glaze it, and of course, they used it for everything. They stored things in it, liquids, grains. Paul says that God has chosen to store this treasure, this this son of his, this gospel, this glory of God. He has chosen to place it, not in jars of silver or gold, but jars of clay. Why? Because we are jars of clay, you and me. We, we chip, we break when we're dropped. Uh, you know, we're not the finest pottery. There's better pottery. But we're the pottery that God has chosen. That's what I see here in Acts 12. I see really regular people. I see heroes who are made of clay. I see pots of clay, Peter, the church. I see you and me, real people. They're powerless. 
They're doomed. You're reading along here and you're going, what chance have they got? Herod, Herod, it's interesting. He calls himself king. And he is the closest thing to his grandfather, Herod the Great. Herod the Great, I mean, he was a bad dude, we know. But I'll tell you, when you study his life, he, he was a huge figure. I mean, this guy, in terms of human achievement, accomplished so much. His, his building program boggles the mind. He's bigger than you realize. Uh, he was so close to Caesar that he was basically third man. This Herod is his grandson, Antipas. After Herod died, they tried to give the kingdom to one of his sons. His sons were, they fell a long way from the tree. And, uh, and so they divided the kingdom between, into fourths. They're called tetrarchs. They're not full-fledged kings. They're just shared under Rome. They operated under Rome. But now Antipas comes along, and, and he's, he's educated in Rome. He's kind of a playboy. He spends more than he can afford. He is, he's the consummate politician. You even see it here. I mean, he takes James out. James is one of the inner circle. James is important. He's an apostle. But he's not the top dude. That's Peter. So he starts kind of down, you know, find, feel his way. Of, see, how the, you know, see how the people respond. And he cuts his head off with a sword, which really sends a message. Because to the, to the Jews, to execute someone with a sword, you only executed a murderer or an apostate. So in doing this, Herod is an, appealing to the Jews that James and the Christians are apostates. That is, they're idol worshipers. They worship more or other than the one true God because they worship Jesus. So Herod is playing favorites here. He kills off James, and it wins some popularity. So he immediately, now, now he's big boy. He goes after Peter, arrests Peter. He's, just got, he's called king, first one since his grandfather. He's a big wig. And I think that I think I think I think the church had their eyes on him. Peter's arrested. Herod, it seems, even wields Roman power. These watches are very Roman. Roman watches every three hours. Four guards on duty for a watch. Peter's in between two with guards stationed at the posts with gate and boundaries. I mean, he's really in dire straits. And there is no hope for them but prayer. But here in chapter 12, we get a bigger picture of power. 
Herod begins by seeking to harm the church in verse 1. But by verse 23, he's eaten by worms. The church, in contrast, starts off with James beheaded, put to death, and its chief leader, Peter, imprisoned in verse 4. But in the end, Peter has escaped, the tyrant Herod is dead, and the church is growing and prospering. Prospering, verse 24. You see, we have a great God. And what I think we're to see in this chapter is that real people, real heroes, the kind of clay, the pots of clay that God chooses to invest His treasure. Yeah, we're down in the details and sometimes we lose sight of our great God and how powerful and mighty He is. Sometimes when it's all about me, we feel lost in the details and unimportant to God's great purposes and plans. I think we're to infer something of this because when Peter shows up, they don't even expect it. Right? I mean, that shows us, gives us a bigger picture of people. I mean, there, verse 4, Peter's arrested, and what does the church do? It does the only thing it can, it prays. And it prays fervently. And they're in the house of John Mark. Mark, who we believe wrote the Gospel of Mark. His mother seems to be a widow, pretty well-to-do. This, this room, this house has an upper room and an outer court. Did you notice that? An outer court. That's where Peter is. He, doesn't, he can't even get in the courtyard. That's why she hears and notices his voice. She doesn't see him. There's a big gate there, and gates were made of wood. So he's out there. She recognizes his voice. She runs inside. It's Peter. You're out of your mind. Let's go back to Peter for a moment. I get a kick out of this. I really think it's charming. Um, against the powerful resources of the king in verse 5, I mean, in verse 5 we get the sense that Peter is up against odds that are insurmountable. Herod's power. I mean, in this chapter, we learn that he has, he has AIDS, he has, you know, even other regions and countries are coming to him because they need, you know, the food that he can provide. Uh, he's, he's got a prison. He's got squads of soldiers, Roman soldiers at that. And here's Peter bound between two of them with the other two guards of the watch stationed at their posts. And into this, an angel appears, a bright light. And look at this in verses 7 and 8. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Now, I don't know, Peter is, he's a groggy boy. And listen to what the angel says. Pay attention here. Quick, get up. Now just put yourself in Peter's place, okay? Quick, get up. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. 
And Peter did so. And then the angel said, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. I've heard this kind of stuff from my mother. The groggy teenager trying to get up and get going. And mom, frustrated, come on, get to the car. Got to get you to school. You're going to be late. That's right. Get your sandals on. Get your robe on. Don't forget your cloak. Come on, follow me. Get with it. I think that's symbolic of our whole Christian life. God is just constantly after us, you know, because we're, we're clay heroes. He makes heroes of us. He demonstrates His all-surpassing power in us, through us. We get it all wrong when we think it's our power. And we do. We do. And so, Peter realizes in verse, I mean, you know, the the angel leads him out, and the gate swings open. I think the NIV says, on its own. The Greek is automatically. Automate. Automatically. It, of itself. So the angel's leading Peter along. He's probably still trying to get his shoes on. He's groggy. He doesn't even think this is really happening. He thinks it's some kind of vision. And uh, the gate opens automatically. The angel leads him. The length of a street disappears. Peter comes to himself. He says, oh my, God has touched me personally. He has vindicated me. Of course, in our society, we wouldn't think of it that way. We would rationalize the whole thing away and say, you know, now that I think about it, it was because I did this and this and this, or it probably would have turned out all right anyway. Why did I worry so much? And yet we prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And how many times do we stop and thank and thank and thank and thank God? But anyway, he goes to where they're praying. Boom, 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 boom. Rhoda comes out. Here's it's Peter. She's so excited. She accepts it. She runs inside. And the Peter who was led by an angel out of prison can't even get past the gate to get into the people who are praying for his release because they don't believe. Clay heroes. but delivered nonetheless. And I think Peter's deliverance highlights the continuing gap between our human understanding and the wonder of God and His power at work. And that's the gap that I just, I want to try and bridge a little this morning for us. You have to preach it to yourself. You have to remind yourself. You belong to the God who created heaven and earth. Who called Abraham? Who raised up the patriarchs, the kings, the prophets? Who foretold of the coming of Jesus, the Messiah? Who at his death and resurrection, glorified at the right hand of the Father, poured out his spirit on his people? And here, not 10 to 11 years later, a king has risen up. He only reigned from 39 to 44, did King Herod. I almost think Luke, the way he's constructed this, he wants you to get that sense that, wow, 
we're leaving a lot out of this picture. We're leaving a lot out of this picture. Our, our perspective is preoccupied by King Herod and his power and what he can do. We're down in the details, and we're praying the only thing we can do. But then when God starts to answer prayer, it's like, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. It's his angel, if it's anything. Can't really be Peter. That is so close to my own experience. But see, I'm, I'm getting up there now, and I'm starting to learn my lessons finally. So I want you to start learning these lessons too. That's what we've got to do is preach to ourselves. To remind ourselves down in the detail that there's going to be a verse 23 and a verse 24. That the King Herods are going to pass from the scene. And God's Word is going to continue to grow and to multiply and expand and go on. And we've got to realize that we're part of that plan. And so, that brings me to the bigger picture of prayer. Because the Jesus people here do all the right things, but they do it with a shortage of perfect faith and a lack of expectation. And that is very human, isn't it? That's very close to home. I want us to expect great things from God. Why don't you expect great things from God? I'll tell you why I don't expect great things for, from God. I, I am getting better. I'm, I don't want you to think I'm a total washout. I, I, I couldn't talk about this if I was. Um, I think it's because we are aware that we're clay, that we are frail. I, I'm very aware of my unworthiness when I think of the things that God wants to do. And I think, wow, Lord, you could choose someone better than me. And so we tend to, uh, you know, fix upon our shortcomings, our failings, our sinfulness, our unworthiness. Do you ever do that? Maybe I'm talking to the wrong crowd. But you see, Jesus died on the cross to settle that. And I think that, that issue of seeing our shortcomings and failings is an issue of where we really want to find the power. We want to find it in ourselves. It is so important for you and me to realize that God is going to do things in and through you by simply trusting Him and making yourself available to Him, instead of sometimes taking yourself out of the game because you think, well, I, I'm just not worthy, or I, you can't use me. or, You know what I'm saying? I'll tell you how this... this I wrestle with this when I'm trying to prepare these sermons, I think. It just, week by week, you know, and this week it really hit me. I said, God, I am, I'm not thinking that you can use me on Sunday, and that is causing me distress each and every week. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be easy for me, but I really had to kind of let go. I went and rode my bike in the morning on, 
on Saturday, which I normally don't because I keep, I keep working on this. I got to get this just right. So I let it go for a while and I came back later in the afternoon and things just fell into place. And I, I don't know, maybe that's a silly analogy, but it's real life for me. I don't know what your situation is. I just want you this morning as we close to be thinking, you know what, I'm down here in the details of my own experience, but I belong to the God of the chapter, the God of the story, the God of the plot. And He wants to use me right where I'm at. And that can be a source of great encouragement and confidence. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, just a final thought, Paul says... Be anxious for not one thing. But he then says, on the contrary, or opposite being anxious, do this. Pray. Present your petitions to God with, and here's, this is what you've got to catch, with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. And then he goes on to say, and the God of all peace will guard your hearts and minds. I mean, the peace of God will surpass even your understanding and guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. Now, this with thanksgiving, what does that really do? Here's the way we deal with prayer sometimes. We are praying a certain way. God, this is what you've got to do for me. And when you do it, I will give you thanks. It might be, I need a new car, or I need a new boyfriend, or <laughs> I need a new appliance, or I need this at work, or I need to, we're th praying about all these specific things. But we're not doing it with thanksgiving. We're doing it with this, God, you've got to do it just this way. And then when it doesn't go just that way, we're very disappointed, and sometimes you'll hear people actually say, I tried it. You know, when you say pray, I tried it and it didn't work. It's the with thanksgiving that opens our eyes to see God at work in ways outside of our perfect little plan. To realize that you are part of His plan and He has things that He wants to do in your life that involve you that are a part of His grand plan. So with thanksgiving in everything, you're just opening your eyes to God moving in ways you didn't expect. Because remember, if you're just praying a certain way, then you can't see God working unless He's working just your way. But if you pray with thanksgiving, you can start to see God working in ways you didn't even realize. And you'll start to experience joy and peace in the midst of the details. And you'll actually start to enjoy the outcome. You'll start to enjoy verse 23 and verse 24 while you're back in verse 4 and verse 7 and 8. So, we're given a bigger picture of God. See God bigger in all the ways you live. Will you stand with me and I'll close this in prayer. After, I, after we say amen, if you would like to pray with me or one of the pastoral staff or elders and wives that are here, uh, we invite you to come. Maybe you want to pray about something you're going through down in the words and the verses. You want to commit it to the God of the chapters and the story. Or maybe 
You don't even know the God of the story. And you'd like Him to be your God in the verses and the details. We invite you to come. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank You for the work of Your Spirit in our lives. So much, Father, we, we don't always see at the moment. And You give us eyes to see the grand things that You're doing. Others see sometimes before us what You're doing in our lives. The differences, the change, the spirit of our lives and Your all-surpassing power. May it make a difference in the way we look at the world around us today and throughout this week. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said,